the National Archives podcast series, Madam Rachel of Bond Street, presented by Helen Rappaport. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. My first talk at uh, this lovely, lovely repository and somewhere I have, of course, myself worked in the past when I was particularly researching the Crimean War. Um, Madam Rachel, had many of you heard of Madam Rachel? Um, she was the most extraordinary, scandalous woman of her day. And yet, surprisingly, when I discovered her, she, she was one of these characters who gets lost in, in the footnotes of Victorian history. She'd been completely forgotten. And how I found her, really, was just rather lucky, because there I was in one of those fallow periods between books as a writer. And I was looking for another Victorian subject, because I have a great passion for the Victorian period. And I thought, well, what's the obvious thing you do? Well, go maybe down to the law library at Oxford, where I, I live, uh, the, the university law library, and just have a look at famous trials and scandals from the Victorian era to see if there's someone who's been overlooked because, you know, we know all the obvious ones, the Tichborne claimant, you know, the Morden dis divorce case, all the big sort of scandals that have rocked the aristocracy. And there I was reading through a whole collection of old trials from that period, in mainly in books published in the 20s and 30s. And two or three times I came across mentions of this extraordinary woman, Madame Rachel of Bond Street. And, okay, there were only fairly small um, discussions of her story, you know, ten, a dozen pages. But something about that story completely gripped my imagination. It was so compelling, because here was a woman I discovered who'd been all over the papers, in and out of the papers for the best part, really, of 20 years, and she'd been completely now lost to history. So, you know, I have that kind of detective instinct with history writing. I suppose if I hadn't become a historian, I would have liked to have been a detective because I love cracking enigmas and puzzles. And it's such a thrill, the thrill of the chase, which you get in family history of filling in the gaps, trying to slot bits of the jigsaw into place. Well, at the time when I found Madame Rachel, I was so excited. I really, really wanted to write the book. And I took the idea to my agent, and he said, not commercial, forget it. Oh, I'll never sell that. No, it's the obscure Victorian. Forget it, forget it. But of course, things change. Time, time moves on. And this book came out, which, of course, if you haven't read it, what planet are you on? I mean, it's the most compelling... Um, re, not rediscovery, because the case itself was well known, but it's a retelling of a classic Victorian cause, Celebra. And the success of this book completely changed the landscape for me, because suddenly Victorian true crime, ah, that's suddenly sexy. And, you know, if you're a trade writer as I am, and you're trying to sell good ideas to publishers, you've got to be sexy. You've got to come up with ideas that are going to appeal to the public. So that kind of changed things. And I did get the book signed, although in the end, uh, I have to say, I did take it to a very small imprint, because my main publisher with the recession decided not to do it after all. So there I was with this extraordinary story. And the immediate thing that gripped me about Rachel, well, first of all, was there were pictures of her. There was quite a few carte de visite. 
in circulation. This one was taken at the time of her 1868 trial. Extremely imposing woman, very beautifully dressed, a la sort of dowager widow, very much in, with Queen Victoria in mind, because this is 1860s, not long after Albert died. So the first thing I wanted to do was have something of Rachel as an inspiration. And I did what maybe some of you have done. I went on eBay and I kept looking and kept looking. Suddenly, another version of the carte de visite became available. And I did that nail-biting thing of going on an online auction. And you know, the seconds are ticking down and the bidding's going up and up and up and you keep clicking and praying. Anyway, I did get this. It was, um, it, it was just good to have the image of this woman because... The first thing that immediately confronts one, looking at that face, this is a woman who flogged cosmetics <laughs> <laughs> and made enormous, actually enormous amounts of money. And um, well, she isn't exactly an advertisement for them, is she? And that was what's so astonishing about this story. This was a woman utterly compelling, quite terrifying, a very clever con artist, blackmailer, um, in many ways, she was, yes, of course, a criminal, but one of those seductive criminals who you couldn't make up. And that's why I love history. That's why I love writing history. That's why I love digging out these stories, because history is always, the true story is always stranger than fiction. And of course, what was wonderful in particular about doing this story, I knew from the start there is not going to be loads and loads of secondary material there, i.e., I think one of the reasons her story hadn't been told you can't do a quick cut and paste around secondary, secondary sources. You've got to go back to the primary source material. And what a joy it is, because we are all living now in the age of digitization, which makes it possible. I mean, just thinking in terms of when I did my own family tree way back in the early 80s, I did it all cranking the microfilm laboriously in the old repositories. But now you can do so much at the press of a button it's phenomenal how we can make these fantastic inroads into rediscovering our lost past, particularly from the 19th century, because of digitization. And the great thing about doing this story was, of course, that most of Rachel's story is told in the newspapers and magazines of the day. And so, thanks to this marvellous project, I'm sure you must have used it, the British Library Project, to digitise a great number of newspapers and journals, uh, plus the Times, of course, which has been digitised longer than all the others. I do wish they'd hurry up and do the Telegraph, though. Um, anyway, I, it, I, it gave me a chance to get right back into the story as it was happening in the 1860s. And, of course, the glorious thing about court cases, when you're reading, and, of course, they went acres and acres and acres of coverage of the celebrated court cases this woman was involved in. The great thing about them is you hear the voices. You get verbatim of how people spoke, how they presented themselves, what was said in court, and it so brings history alive. And you can't get that from secondary regurgitated sources. So I was particularly proud to be able to reconstruct this story as close as I could to the real thing. And I will just mention one more thing about it, the actual research, because you all, in many ways, are researchers like me. Um, the research for this book, the other thing that came in greatly into play was my, my experience as a genealogist. 
I'd done all my own family history and in all my books I always used genealogy as a tool in getting to find out facts about my subjects, obviously, if they're Victorian ones. So, and genealogy played an extraordinary part in getting to grips with Madame Rachel because she was a chameleon. She had many aliases. She never came clean about who exactly she was, her real background. And I don't want to spoil the story by giving it all to you here. And it's not that I'm trying to sell my book, but, you know, it, there is a big reveal in the book and it's fascinating. And the extraordinary thing about that genealogy was, again, digitization, the modern age. I was looking and searching in vain for the right connection to her family tree. And I went to the Royal Academy of Music in search of one part of it via one of her children. And they said, oh, that's funny. We've had someone asking about this same person. This is one of Rachel's daughters. Um, we might have her emails somewhere and of course what happens and, and maybe you've had this experience too you're given an email you contact someone on the other side of the world or wherever uh, oh yes I know all about that family you know I've got some information that might help you so that is the joy of writing history now digitization using genealogy using the newspapers and magazines of the day to reconstruct people who'd otherwise languish in obscurity in the footnotes. So where did Rachel come from? Well, of course, she didn't start out as Madame Rachel. She was born in the area of Drury Lane. We're not even quite sure when she was born, probably around 1815, into a poor family and grew up um, in, in and around Drury Lane and started out in life as, as what was then called... Um, a, a wardrobe dealer. Now, that's not a dealer in wardrobes that you put your clothes in. It, it's an actually a second-hand clothes dealer. And she used to do her trade up and down Drury Lane amongst the actresses buying and selling dresses. Now, at this point, very early in the story, I picked up evidence that also she did a little bit of procuring um, of amongst the actresses for a friend of hers called David Belasco, who ran a brothel just up round the road. Now, this is part of Rachel's story that's very, very hard to pin down. There was a massive amount of rumour during the time of her notoriety about what she got up to, but I have pretty strong feelings that she did work as a procuress in the early days. But that wasn't enough for her. She wanted to move on. She was ambitious. So she moved from um, selling second-hand clothes into, very close by, she moved into Clare Market, Clare Court, if any of you know where the site of London School of Economics is, just up from the Aldwych, that whole area was raised, but that was the area of Clare Market, which was a butcher's shambles. It was also a seething den of pimps and criminals and prostitutes, a bit like Dickens's Seven Dials, but that whole lot was later raised, that whole area. But Rachel lived here, and being a very clever, enterprising woman of business, went into an interesting trade. This is the kind of court, the tenements that she would have lived in. She set herself up in what was then, I suppose you could call, the Victorian fast food trade. I mean, we have McDonald's. The Victorians had hot potatoes and fried fish. And um, what was interesting, I didn't realise this, but all the poor used to go and buy hot potatoes as quick food when, you know, um, whenever they needed a quick and easy meal. So there are these hot potato sellers all over London. But interestingly, um, Rachel was Jewish 
And um, although her name at this point, I should point out, was Sarah, Sarah Leveson. Um, I discovered, and I think there have been articles recently, in fact, the first people to fry fish were the Jews because they fried it for Sabbath night and into Saturday when they could eat it cold. So Rachel did a roaring trade, selling hot potatoes and fried fish, but then she got fell ill. She developed, I think, uh, it's, there seems to be evidence that she had rheumatic fever and was taken to the local hospital in the area. And um, one thing that she was very proud about was her glorious, shiny black hair. I mean, she may have had a face like a battle axe, but she had beautiful black hair. And it all started going thin and falling out. So she asked the surgeon at the hospital, please, can you give me a tonic for my hair to restore my hair? Now, this all may, of course, be apocryphal and may well be part of Rachel's sales hype, but she claimed this incredible tonic did the trick, restored her hair to all its glory. And being a clever woman, she thought, hmm, hair restoratives, maybe that's a better line of business than hot potatoes and fried fish. So she decided to go into business selling hair restoratives. And, of course, the first thing she had to do was have an image, have a brand. And being Sarah Levison was not particularly good on the ear or attractive as a marketing brand. So what did Rachel do? Well, she stole her identity from this woman. This is Mademoiselle Rachel, a Jewish-French actress who had wowed audiences in London in the 1840s when she came over on tour and performed Racine, particularly Phèdre, that was her most notable part. She was a hugely acclaimed actress, and of course, Mademoiselle Rachel had this kind of darkly Jewish exoticism, and Rachel thought, oh, well, I'm going to steal the name. So she became, she went from being Sarah Lieberson to Ma Madame Rachel, and of course played on the connection. She used to tell people that she was a distant cousin of the great French tragedian and all that. I mean, and even had a bust of Mademoiselle Rachel in her shop, but it was all part of this persona she was building to gain a very upmarket clientele. And of course, the next move, having got the image, she had to change premises. So she started advertising to, for the kind of clientele she wanted, which really had to be Mayfair, the titled and wealthy ladies of Mayfair. And here's one of her very first extensive adverts in the Morning Chronicle in 59. I just want to read you one little bit of it which absolutely encapsulates the way she was playing on women's gull gullibility and vanity. How frequently we find that a slight blemish on the face, otherwise divinely beautiful, has occasioned a sad and solitary life of celibacy, unloved, unblessed, and ultimately unwept and unremembered. Whereas, by prompt and judicious appliances, the defect can be removed, and a beauteous loveliness succeeds so conducive to the happiness and connubial felicity of the fair and graceful being. And then at the bottom, I love this, she says, Jordan water, direct from the river for state occasions. Now, what Rachel was doing, she's moving into cosmetics now. Not just hair dyes, she's putting together lotions and potions and making the most outlandish claims for wrinkle-removing uh, uh, cosmetics. 
And that is how she started, and that is how she went on to her dying day. She claimed she had the best products going, only her stuff worked, her stuff was exclusive, you paid astronomical prices, but you got results. I, I mean, she was such a clever self-marketer. I think if she'd been alive today, she would have been saying, Madam Rachel, because you're worth it. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of finger on the pulse, self-publicist that she was. So she now borrows money and takes out a hefty mortgage to move to premises in New Bond Street. Now, this is the top end um, towards the Oxford Street end, New Bond Street. Um, and this is not her shop, but it's the kind of facade, how the facades would have been in the 1860s. Now, before I get on to her career, I just want to say, uh, digress a little bit into what was available then in terms of um, cosmetics, what was the attitude to them? Because you've got to remember, this is mid-Victorian Britain. There were massive moral objections at the time to women wearing anything other than, you know, perhaps a dab of powder. But fundamentally, everything, anything a woman put on her face was really frowned on because it was the old adage, you know, the only women who used cosmetics were prostitutes and actresses. And so any woman wanting to beautify herself and go to a cosmetician, and they were a new force coming into the market, um, would have invited a lot of disapproving looks because most of the male detractors of cosmetics would say, oh, absolutely no, you know, nothing but soap and water. And even one gentleman wrote um, that, that women shouldn't even indulge in too much dancing because it made them too flushed and that was rather vulgar. So that women at this point, though, 1860s, were beginning to want to escape the domestic sphere, stop being the angel in the house. Women wanted to be consumers. Women with money wanted to go out shopping places like Bond Street. They wanted to buy nice, nice dresses, have their hair done, look good. So this is the beginning of the battle for women to get out there and spend money. And Rachel was tapping into that. But what could these women buy? Well, very little at the time. Advertising was absolutely in its infancy. This is the kind of advertisements you would have got. Um, this is from a serialization of our mutual friend, Dickens' novel, which came out in 64, I think. And as you can see, yes, 64 to 65, very, very crude adverts there of these things. And you've seen those white pots with the kind of transfer lids. Uh, Peace and Lubin's Love and Kisses, Congress of Flowers. Well, they were just down the road from Rachel, older established firm. So there wasn't much out there, and what there was was very crudely advertised. But there was one product, in fact, that had been around for quite a long time already. Roland had set himself up early in the century, and by the 1820s was promoting his face washes, and his Macassar oil was a huge seller with gentlemen. Um, and his Roland's Calidor was a kind of face wash, a, a multi-purpose specific for cutaneous deformities, including freckles, pimples, spots, redness, and every other imperfection incident to the skin. So another um, practitioner making outlandish uh, claims for a, a, a catch-all product, which is exactly what Rachel, of course, would be doing. Well, what exactly were these skin lotions? Well, really, they were kind of crude exfoliants and this is where it becomes rather worrying because in fact what they were were dilutions with um, perfume added or oils added 
fundamentally of things like corrosive sublimate, chloride of ammonium, bichloride of mercury, prussic and even hydrochloric acid. So you can just imagine in the wrong dilutions the damage these kind of products could have caused. And, and, and of course they did. And then of course the advertising was crude, so was the packaging. And so what happened was because cosmetics were hard to get, expensive, and also so frowned upon. A lot of women did it themselves. They made their own cosmetics at home because there were lots of helpful little books around that, that would give them just the basic, literally like a cookery recipe, and this was one of them. The Toilette of Health, Beauty and Fashion, which had, has an amazing array of recipes using everything from kind of cucumbers to myrrh and incense and the most expensive ingredients. But if women wanted to do it themselves, there were two basic commodities they could make. There was um, white cosmetic, which was fundamentally a white powder. Um, and in the old days, of course, women used white lead, uh, which actually slowly killed them. But white cosmetic normally now was a mixture of fine French chalk with starch or ground flour of oatmeal. Um, so they could easily mix that up at home. That was face powder. As far as redness was concerned, well, they could make red cosmetic or rosinette. Again, by taking a, dark, a, a wood with a very dark stain like sandalwood and boiling it up with white wine vinegar and alum and then leaving it to dry and it left a very pinky powder which they could then use as rouge. But that was pretty much it. It was very, very crude. So the only other thing they could make at home, of course the other essential, was face cream to protect their skin. So the products there, even the ones available in the shops, were very, very basically uh, a crude mixture of either odorless wax, animal fats or lard with a bit of almond oil, essence of rose, essence of um, lavender or orange, or something to do, you know, kind of disguise the rather gruesome smell. So women could quite easily make these up at home, and those with a bit of money could buy a more superior product, which was spermaceti. Now, no wonder the whales were hunted almost to extinction because this extraordinary ingredient was the head wax from the head cavity of the whale, which, which provided a very fine quality wax. It was, used, it was used in candles and ointments, but also it was an absolute key ingredient in the cosmetics business. And if you could afford it, you can make your own face cream at home using spermaceti. It's widely available. But those who couldn't afford it would make something crude, like this recipe I found for cucumber pomatum, which is a kind of cold cream, which was basically four pounds of clarified lard, a pound of veal suet, melt it down, and stir in three pounds of mashed and strained cucumber, <laughs> and let it solidify, and that was your brew. Well. Rachel was using these kinds of ingredients, and I, I would say one thing, she did use very expensive oils and lavender perfumes and this, that and the other. Some of those basic oils and tinctures were expensive to um, import, but when it came down to it, what she did was just dress it up in fancy bottles, charge huge amounts of money, and hype. Massive, massive hype. She was a very clever businesswoman. She advertised 
all over the place. Here's a page from Debrett's Peerage in which she makes all her many out outlandish claims promoting her pamphlet called Beautiful Forever in which she promised all these miraculous uh, transformations of women's skin. And she advertised everywhere. She advertised in the Times, the Court Journal, the actresses, uh, uh, theatrical newspaper, The Era, which was very popular at the time. And interestingly, she never paid any of her bills and was always being chased to settle up. So she'd be, as you can see, she was a very accomplished con artist. And the thing that happens with a very clever con, art con artist like this, who brings out these exotic, exclusive-sounding products from the right premises, all that social cachet, um, advertising in the right magazines, claiming to be purveyor to Her Majesty the Queen. Well, that is a joke for a start. I mean, as if Queen Victoria would ever use this stuff. But what it did was it attracted the clientele she wanted. Rich women would come. I mean, the word got round the sort of tea parties and afternoon receptions of London. And women wanted the confidentiality to come and see Rachel at her salon in Bond Street. But the one thing they all demanded, of course, at this time when it, cosmetics were so frowned on, was secrecy because they didn't want their husbands to know. And they didn't want you know, society gossip to get round that, oh, Lady so-and-so is having her face done at Madame Rachel's. But a lot of rich and influential women were going to her and running in the door, heavily veiled from their carriages, which pulled up outside in secrecy, going for consultations. Now, word got out about Rachel very quickly, as, as I've probably mentioned. And right from the beginning, when she moved to Bond Street, the satirical press were, were, were talking about her, doing cartoons about her. I mean, this is an exaggerated view, but they were also, of course, satirizing the women who went to Rachel. So what did these women find when they got to that front door, 47A, New Bond Street? Well, she, she absolutely went the whole hog. They walk into this kind of Aladdin's cave of Middle Eastern mystery and opulence. It was like going into a hari, you know, sandalwood and spices and incense burning and tinkling fountains and wall hangings and uh, oriental rugs on the floor. And in attendance, the terrifying looking Madame Rachel, but she had, uh, she had actually seven children, but her two eldest daughters, Rachel, and Leontine were dressed up in beautiful flowing Arab robes as handmaidens, very beautiful girls. So everyone said she had her youngest little boy dressed up in a turban as a page boy. So you can imagine all this wafting around and the clients come in and they're completely beguiled by it. And what do they actually get for their money? Well, I found it quite astonishing when I did the research and I discovered the kind of money these women were spending was astronomical by today's standards. The prices started from 10 shillings and sixpence. Now, 10 and six then had the spending power of about 32 pounds today. And that was just for a little bottle of um, aromatic gum. Rachel's various products went up and up and up to her top product. Jordan water, direct from the river, remember, all the way from the Middle East. 
this miraculous wrinkle removing Jordan water for which she would charge 10 to 20 guineas a bottle and that's astonishing that's something like um, oh, don't do the sum 600 pounds a bottle but these women spent it. And of course, she dressed up all her products with these exotic names, Circassian Golden Hair Wash, Royal Arabian Face Cream, Honey of Mount Hymettus Soap, or Arab Bloom and Favorite of the Harem's Face Powders. And then the women just bought into it. All these products, though, she claimed, were brought by you know, swift dromedaries across the deserts of Africa, from Armenia, from Circassia, from Madagascar. Maybe some of them were, because she did use good quality oils and perfumes, as I've mentioned. And the holy grail of this absurd repertoire was her much-hyped magnetic rock dew water for removing wrinkles. Now, if you believe this, this was bought all the way from a magnetic rock dew water stream in the middle of the desert. <coughs> and it was brought and bottled and she sold it for enormous amounts of money. And then there was this special treatment she offered for brides before they were married, which was called the Royal Arabian Toilet of Beauty, as arranged by Madame Rachel for the <coughs> Sultana of Turkey, the facsimile of which is used by the Royal European Brides. And here was the price. 100 pounds to 1,000 guineas. That's thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. And women bought it. I, I'm just completely astonished. But they did. They came and, and they came in droves and they bought these absurdly overpriced products. And the one other thing that Rachel prided herself on and that she promoted throughout her sales pitches in all the press it was this thing about being an enameler of ladies' faces. Now, I don't know if you've come across the term, but the term actually, from the moment she, whether she didn't really coin it, it had been around, but once it was associated with Rachel, it remained always linked to her name. Enameling of ladies' faces, basically, was a process of painting them up with this beautiful, fashionable porcelain, perfect whiteness for some grand ball or a lovey or a soiree and what she did she just cleansed the skin took out uh, any fuzz on the face with all using all these alkaline solutions and then mixed up this kind of cream which literally is a bit like polyfiller I think <laughs> which she sort of spread around. and she never gave her secrets away so I don't know exactly what she used but she would spread it across these women's faces for this special occasion um, telling them that, you know, this was going to make them beautiful forever. Now, what's so interesting about this technique is it did persist beyond Rachel right through the century. Ah, oh, here's one other image I should show you. This is all about the hype of promising, you know, you start off as an old hag, come to me and you'll be beautiful. Um, but one of the most interesting uh, fans of the enamelling technique, believe it or not, was Alexandra at that time, of course, only Princess of Wales. But there are, there are records of her having this strange kind of plasticated enameled look. And I did eventually find a recipe for enameling in, from the 90s, 1890s, in which the, the cosmetic was a mixture of turpentine, sweet almonds, spermaceti, 
flour of zinc, white wax, and rose water. And this would have all been melded together and spread on the face. Now, the thing I, I kind of have this vision of is all these ladies going around. Yes, because I, you know, if it smiled or laughed or cried or done anything, surely the whole thing would just have collapsed. It's astonishing it was so popular. They must have had a permanent kind of rictus expression. But anyway, we now come to the problem with all these rich and titled ladies coming to Rachel. Well, of course, yes, they were on paper rich. But of course, the convention in those days, and I think it prevailed well into the 20th century, was the aristocracy never handed over money. That was just too crude and dirty. You know, everything was on tick on account. So what happened, all these rich ladies were running up enormous bills on account. And the crux of it was, this was at a time when their money wasn't their own, because this is 1860s. And it wasn't until the Married Women's Property Act of 1882 that a woman had any rights to her own money once she married. You know, the convention at the time was, once you married, your property was your husband's. Any money you want to spend was entirely up to him giving you an allowance. So these women went way over their allowances, ran up enormous bills they couldn't pay. And then, you know, they get into real trouble because this is the point at which things get very sinister with Rachel. Now, two of her clients, I've, it's very, very hard to pinpoint which, precisely which women patronized her. For obvious reasons, they kept she promised exclusivity and secrecy, but I have found one or two names, and one of them who went to her was Adeline Horsey, Countess of Cardigan, wife of the Crimean War hero. Now, I do have documented um, note of her patronizing Rachel, and also um, another extraordinary woman called uh, Georgiana, Countess of Dudley. Now, what strikes you about those two women? They're already beautiful. Why did they need to go to Rachel? I just find this completely baffling. Even more so with du the, the uh, Countess of Dudley because she was a noted great beauty of her day. Later on in the century became one of Prince of Wales' many mistresses. These women hardly needed to go. But it's this kind of unspoken peer pressure. Well, Lady so-and-so goes and she looked fabulous at her last ball. Oh, maybe I ought to go too. You know, there's this constant rivalry amongst these high society ladies to go, you know, go one up on each other. Now, the Countess of Dudley got into real trouble with Rachel because she, like all the others, way overspent her credit. And then we come to the point where Rachel would say to many of her lady clients, as she did to <coughs> Dudley, oh, well, you wouldn't like me to tell your husband you've been coming here. Um, why don't you leave your diamonds with me or security? And um, this happened time and time again. Women handed over their jewels as security because they couldn't pay their bills. And in the case of the Countess of Dudley, she handed over her jewels and then created this most preposterous story about how they were stolen. And it was all over the papers. And, and uh, it's just amazing what went on. Well, as you can imagine, lots of women got caught in Rachel's net. But the thing that kept them all stumm was the terror of exposure, of the social scandal, of court cases. But in the end, one rather unlikely lady did eventually go to court. This is poor Mary Tucker Borrowdale, who maybe did need a bit of help from Rachel, <laughs> because she was the widow of um, 
uh, an Indian Army major. She spent a long time out in the hot sun and was worried her skin was looking a bit tatty. Extremely um, timorous and uh, impressionable woman and went to Rachel to get some help with her skin. And it's at this point that Rachel kind of pounced like an absolute vulture and fleeced this woman of virtually every penny she had. Because it's still hard to credit, and if you read the book, I mean, it's just, it's insane how this scam was created by Rachel. But what she did, she used to have a gentleman who used to pop down to her shop quite often, as she was friendly with. His name was Lord Ranelagh. He was a well-known man about town and rake. Um, who used to pop into Rachel, so he claimed, just for a chat and to buy the odd thing, because as well as selling cosmetics, she sold objets de vertu, little bits of ceramics. Actually, what he popped down there to do, I think, and again, this is a part of the story that's quite hard to prove, but there's enough gossip, was to spy on these ladies taking their Arabian baths through a, a Judas hole. So anyway, he, she created this absurd scam in which she convinced Mary Tucker Borrowdale that Lord Ranelagh had seen her at the salon and thought she was absolutely gorgeous and he wanted to marry her, but it all had to be kept hush-hop until, until the right moment. And, and of course, if she was going to marry a lord, she'd have to be beautiful for the occasion. She'd have to buy a tiara and frocks and lace and this, that and the other. And what Rachel did was fleece this woman um, systematically of, first of all, her private income, then her stocks and shares, which she was forced to cash in, then she was forced to sell the reversion on a property she owned, and finally she stripped her even of her widow's pension. All in all, um, kind of swapping into contemporary equivalent, she fleeced her of something like £350,000 worth, all, every penny she had. In the end, of course, Mary Tucker Borrowdale's family were very alarmed and they said, you've got to go to law, you've got to get this woman, you've got to. So they went to probably the greatest criminal lawyer of his day, George Henry Lewis, a very fine man, later actually knighted towards the end of the century. George Lewis knew, had a whole network of snouts and um, gossipers and people who gave him informers, people who gave him information. He knew the whole London underworld. He also, later in the century, was involved in several court scandals, particularly the, I think it was the Mordant or the Tramby Croft case of the Prince of Wales. There wasn't a bit of society gossip, scandalous gossip, that this man didn't know about. I just wish he'd written his memoirs. They would have been the kiss and tell of the century, but like all good men of integrity, they went to the grave with him and he said they always would. But George Lewis got together a team and Rachel was hauled up on a charge of fraud. Now, she was tried twice in very quick succession in 1868. First of all, she was taken to Newgate, pending her trial and held there, uh, and then into the Central Criminal Court. Now, what happened, unfortunately, was that um, at the first trial, there was a mistrial because one of the jurors held out for an acquittal. He felt the case against Rachel, technically and legally, hadn't been sufficiently well proved. And many of the press actually agreed that, that certainly the legal press agreed it hadn't been well proved. But of course, this was a field day, you know, a big scandalous court case. So everyone was there. The courtroom, as you saw, was crowded out. She was sketched by people in court. 
The first trial was a mistrial and she was retried about six weeks later. During that second trial, it's the same prosecutor again uh, confronted her and his name was William ba Sergeant William Ballantyne. Sergeant is the attribution they have in the legal profession. One of the great criminal prosecutors of his day. And uh, he fought tooth and nail and he, in the end, did um, secure a conviction. But one thing I just want to point out, between those two trials, the important thing to remember is that um, there was no gagging order. No gagging order whatsoever on a discussion of the case. And also, of course, this was in the days before the Prisoner's Evidence Act of 1898, so Rachel wasn't even allowed to go in the witness box and defend herself. So what happens in the six weeks between those two trials was a systematic campaign of vilification of Rachel. Well, first of all, there were the penny pamphlets, and this here is Lord Ranelagh spying on a lady, taking her Arabian bath. Um, actually, Rachel herself promoted one, giving her side of the story, but the, the, the press was awash with scandal and every possible aspect of her business operation. And the other thing that comes through loud and clear in that period, in, in that inter, interim period, was massive anti-Semitic satire and attacks on Rachel as a Jew. Um, this is probably one of the most unpleasant cartoons i found, but uh, she was vilified in the music halls, um, in the gutter press, in all the satirical journals. Arthur Lloyd, the famous musical performer, was taking this song round the halls to great acclaim, Mrs. Mary Plucker Sparrowtail. So, of course, it wasn't just Rachel, it was Mary Borrowdale got completely satirised and, and lampooned across the press. So you can imagine, you know, whatever her crime, Rachel didn't stand a chance. And, of course, she um, was given the full full possible sentence that could be given five years for fraud and consigned to Millbank. You know where Millbank, that hideous great octagonal fortress of prison on the site of what is now the Tate Gallery. She was sent to Millbank, but unfortunately this rheumatic fever she'd had in her youth, her, she did have heart trouble. She was quite a sickly woman and very quickly she had to be transferred to um, a new um, invalid, uh, invalid convict prison that had been built at Woking in Surrey, specifically for sick prisoners. And she was worked in the laundry at Woking. And um, she, obviously things go quiet for a while. She comes out on good behaviour ahead of her full five-year term in December 1872. And goes off quietly, goes to ground for a few months. And then suddenly, December 1872, what appears in the press? Yet another advertisement from Madame Rachel. And again, she set herself back up in business, modestly, quietly, but nevertheless, you know, you can't teach a dog new tricks or whatever the saying is. She wasn't going to let go of the one thing that she knew how to make a living out of. And there were still gullible women despite all that exposure, who would come, still wanted to, to patronise her. So she sets up business again quietly um, here, just off, Ox this is Oxford Street in the early 1870s, just up from Oxford Street at Great Portland Street. 
and again builds a clientele. It's much more low profile than the first time, but she does advertise and she does pull in her victims. And of course, sooner or later, um, a woman comes along who's again defrauded, um, whose jewels are taken from her and who then in the end has the courage to tell her husband who immediately hauls her off to George Lewis again, the George Lewis who put together the previous trial. Now this woman was not a silly kind of a twittering creature like Mary Borrowdale. Cecilia Maria Pierce was a lady of some substance and standing, had a lot of friends and patrons. She was involved as a, in the music business as an amateur singer and patron of a lot of charities and coincidentally knew one of Rachel's daughters who was an opera singer, so there was a loose connection. But nevertheless, she, again, was uh, decided to take, um, you know, to sue Rachel. And in fact, again, Rachel was actually prosecuted in the end for fraud, as before. But it, what's so interesting about the second trial is that for the first time, a direct accusation was made about damage to the woman's face because mm, Cecilia Pierce had come out in a terrible rash from using one of these diluted acid-based um, skin lotions. And in the trial in 1878, again at the Central Criminal Court at Old Bailey, you get the very first um, uh, forensic evidence being given. Um, and it's fascinating. They actually got chemists in to die, you know, to actually um, examine the, what the residue of the bottle of stuff uh, Cecilia had bought and describe what was in it. So that's fascinating. And again, of course, there was, there was a considerable amount of press coverage again. The whole trial verbatim recounted across the press. And um, again, she was sent down for five years. And again, as before, she was sent to Millbank, but much too sick and had to be transferred to Woking Convalid, in, Invalid Convict Prison. Um, for that, that remained for quite a long time, that building. It became an army barracks and eventually was um, demolished. But she, in fact, died there because her health never recovered. And she probably spent her last few days in the exercise yard at Woking. There was this rather marvellous uh, article I found, oh, quite late, I think in the 1890s, in one of the illustrated journals, which was a journalist going and doing an article about the prison at Woking and getting some wonderful accounts of Rachel to the bitter end, saying, you know, I can make you beautiful. You know, no one takes me seriously. I alone have the secret art of making women beautiful forever. She never let go of her claims. And maybe in the end, she believed her own hype. Um, to sum up, I just want to say, well, of course, the extraordinary thing about this story, it proves that nothing changes, does it? Nothing changes. 150, 60 years on from this story, women still are chasing those elusive products that will transform their skin, keep them beautiful forever. Women are still willing not only to spend enormous amounts of money, but also risk, take serious risks. Now, and these are much more serious risks than the women then were taking, but nevertheless, their skin could have been badly damaged by the acids. But we're now looking at, you know, the kind of things like this, not just pl plastic surgery, but we're looking at these very highly invasive techniques of injectable acid fillers, 
of toxins like Botox, the silicon lip plumpers, Priscilla Presley is one extreme example, but you know, even Nicole Kidman, her face doesn't move anymore. I don't know if any of you saw Sharon Osbourne on The X Factor. Well, if you can just go online and, and just Google Sharon Osbourne X Factor, her face is shocking. I don't know what she's done to herself, but she looks as though she's been embalmed. So um, this is what women are doing, is this endless, endless, hopeless quest. And of course, I did a quick Google. I thought, well, let's see over the last year or so how many women have fallen foul of this kind of thing. And there it was. Um, why I'll suffer any pain to be beautiful. Uh, this woman had botched fillers. I tried to turn back time with the wrinkle jab, but it wrecked my life. I've had £30,000 worth of beauty treatments and none has worked. This one tried to do do-it-yourself Botox. Um, so, really, I just find it absolutely fascinating. There are so many parallels in, that, in this whole story of Madame and Rachel of Bond Street that show us that, you know, women are still compelled to chase this hopeless dream. Now, as I say, Rachel remained unrepentant to the last. And what's so fascinating is right up to the day she died in October 1880, women were still writing to her in jail, begging for her cosmetic secrets, begging to know how, you know, what she put in her recipes. She never did betray her trade secrets, and she had threatened to write her memoirs. Oh, my God, I wish she had. Oh, they would have been amazing. But she carried on to her dying day, claiming that she alone had this secret art. And finally, if you're curious, you can still see the, ha the shop and the house that she lived at just off Bond Street. Now, 47A is now 47 to 48. It's a different building on the site. This frontage was all revamped. It's sort of Belle Epoque, 1900s style. And the actual ground floor is a very swish couture French shoe shoe shoemaker. But round the corner in Maddox Street, it's on the corner of Maddox, you can still see the house where she, she lived, that she rented, and where she also saw clients. And um, so it's wonderful that there's still a part of history that you can go and rediscover. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 14th of October 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.